Well, I appreciated the testimony about that song. Uh, songs are not just songs, they're theology. Hallelujah. And that is a song that's a theological statement. Uh, we're, we're, in a series of spiritual warfare, we're, we're, you probably noticed it's loaded with grand, grandiose statements. That's why we're going to be careful. Whenever there's a grand statement, to not get into the says who, but we're always going to give scripture and document scripture because the statements are grandiose. So basically, we're going to follow through with where we've been. Let, let me give you the follow through story. Uh, you know what? We have, we have our son, Jonathan. We also have a daughter, Julie, who's about 60 years, five and a half years younger than him. And it, it dawned on me, she was about one and a half in a diaper. Kids know when they should be spent. They, they, they do. They, they, if the line is consistent, they know when you cross it. Julie was about one and a half, and she'd never been spanked. And Jonathan would have been six-ish. He was playing with trucks, and Julie was in the kitchen with, with, with Tammy, with, with, with her mama. And Julie was just terrible. I mean, she's, and Jonathan kept looking at me, playing with trucks, like, I would get away with this. And he just kept playing. And I, I could read this kid's mind, like, how come she's not getting spanked? Well, she'd never been spanked. She was just one and a half. And it dawned on me, you know, you're right, Jonathan. She, she needs someone to just stop her. Now, a spanking for one half of is a love tap, as you know. It's, it's more of a surprise, isn't it? And I, I was never one to count. I'm not making fun of how anybody else raises their kids. I would say, listen, I count for three. I was just spanking. I come out of nowhere and give, give a spank. And so I, I stand up on Julia and I gave her a little spank. I said, no, no, no. Now, Jonathan watching this, Julia, of course, freaked out. Jonathan watching this went, Dad! Now, I feel embarrassed. It's the first spanking on my daughter. You know, you did just, this is a bad day. I didn't need to be taught by my six year old, you're not allowed to hit girls. <laughs> so I kind of turned on him, and he said, Dad! Because I, I didn't need any advice from him right now. I felt bad enough. So I gave him a spanking, and Jonathan went, Dad! And I turned on him and said, What can I do for you? He said, Dad! You gotta follow through on that swing. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Yes, my kids are cuter than yours. <laughs> so I tell you what, we're, we're telling a story here, so let's let's follow through on that swing. Just a two-second recap, just kind of get fresh in our minds, even if we were here last night. Let's kind of get it fresh in our minds. And this is incredibly relevant because we're part of this. You're living this right now. We showed in Scripture where there's multiple heavens. And, I, and yeah, I, I can't grasp that. In, in, in the glorified state, when my spirit fell on my body, maybe I don't bring jealousy with me. But how, how are you not jealous? I, I, this next book is better than mine. Uh, jealousy must not be part of whatever, whatever trinity is. Maybe that's an earthly thing. And maybe it's celebrate their victories or whatever, but there's levels to heaven, levels in hell. We read about angels in the mid-heavens. And it makes sense because our lives are not equal. There is people just merely have lived their life without Christ, and then there's the Adolf Hitlers. I mean, their, their punishment should be exactly the same, and my, my, my reward should be the same as St. Paul's. And so we are to live to our spiritual potential. And the key here, Jesus, Jesus, I think the most important scripture in the Bible is Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom. Live kingdom. I define kingdom as living my life that God receives glory. That's the meaning of life. Now, as you think about it, if I live my life that God receives glory, everything else is a symptom. How I am in my, as a kid, in, in my character, how I am as a husband, wife, how I are as a wife, how, how I am as a parent. Everything else is a symptom of God receiving glory in my life. Because Satan tries to rob God of glory. 
He's the accuser somehow. He has an ability to come into God's presence and accuse. And say, do you know what Gene Tanner did today? That's not a kingdom. You didn't get glory out of him today. I got glory out of him today. We read that Satan is in fact a beautiful creature. He understands how to make things beautiful that aren't. A third of the angels joined him in the fall. He said, you know, Gene, as I thought about this, this is really deep. I mean, this, this is kind of beyond my imagination. I, I don't know that I can understand all of this. And you talk so fast. <laughs> don't be discouraged. The greatest theologian of all time couldn't grasp this. So don't, don't feel overwhelmed like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant. Don't feel bad if you can't grasp all this. The greatest theologian of all time admitted he couldn't get it all. The greatest theologian? Paul. Look at you in Romans 11, verses 33 and 434. Yes, God's riches are great, and wisdom and knowledge has no end. No one can explain all the things God, God decides are his ways. As scripture says, and he quotes Isaiah 40, 13, who has known the mind of God? So yeah, the, the greatest theologian of all time had to be Paul. And here in Romans, he's right, he says, listen, don't panic if you can't grasp completely everything. This is, he's beyond our imagination. I read one time, Dennis Kindle, right? If, I, if my imagination can go all the way to God, he ain't that big. If my imagination can go all the way to heaven, it ain't that great. If my imagination can go all the way to hell, it ain't that bad. So all this, frankly, we're teaching on things that's a little bit beyond us. I get that. So we have to kind of say, okay, therefore, what do we know? Because Scripture is pretty clear about a lot of stuff we laid out yesterday. Let's only talk about what we know. And I realize as you leave, you're, you're, you're probably going to say, we got it, but it, there's some gaps here. I'm totally with you. There's some gaps here. The core that we know is glory. It all comes down to God's glory. Satan tries to rob God of glory. The only reason you're on this planet is that God receives glory. The meaning of life. Does God receive glory from your life or not? And I think we study warfare not to learn new stuff, but to be challenged in our life. Even, even Jesus' story. You ever notice how it begins and ends? The very beginning of Jesus' story. Bethlehem, the birth. Luke 2.9. And the glory of the Lord shone round about him. His birth is about glory. You ever notice his death? I mean, the beginning and the end of this story in the human form. John 12, 33. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Everything comes down to what even your salvation, frankly, isn't about you. It's about God's glory. Your salvation opens the door for you now to begin to live a life of kingdom. It's about His glory. That's why I always worry when people come to Christ. Why? Are they coming to Christ to make sure they don't go to hell? I get that. That's not dumb. But I always like if they come out of fear, eventually they hate themselves. If they come out of love, they eventually hate sin. So they want people to find Christ out of love. The, to go deeper in this picture, we have, to go, we have to really be very specific in our creation. Because our creation opens the door to everything. By Satan and one third of, the, of, the, of, the, of his followers, demons, cast down. So, how does God respond? He's defeated Satan, he's thrown him down. You know, he, could have, he could have really solved this very easily. It all came about because, remember, Satan was so beautiful, his pride. All God needed to do was make something even more beautiful than Satan. That's that, isn't it? 
If the whole issue of Satan's beauty, the most beautiful thing God ever created, all he's got to do is make something a little bit more beautiful than Satan, and that's it. Theologians say that rather than build up, God built down to defeat Satan. The opposite. He created a race from the earth. And the name of this new being is Adam. Adam is a Hebrew name that literally means of the earth. Adam's race is an earthly race, me and you. Yeah, theologians believe and write that our actual creation is an outgrowth of the rebellion. Because of that rebellion, God needs to defeat Satan, and we are the tools of this. We are to rob Satan of glory that Satan wants to rob God of. That's a weird sentence. So, the bottom line here, you have a grand purpose. We were created because of the fall that we might be a part of God's glory. Giving God glory, defeating Satan over and over and over. And, almost I think, to stick it to Satan one more time, Satan had a place above the angels, the archangel place. God comes along and says, I want to take you to a place higher than the angels. We take his place where he was in eternity. No wonder he hates us so much. No wonder he opposes us so much. So much is recorded around our creation that we have to build from. Genesis makes clear, first of all, we're in the image of God. This becomes incredibly important. Let me read it to you. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, we'll make human beings in our image and likeness. So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he made the male and female. Over and over and over, bangs the drum. We're made in his image. Now, God has walked us through in Genesis the creative process, which the climax is us, men and women. We're in the image of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's three in one. So if we're in his image, we got to be three in one. Don't we? You say, well, no, I, I'm, I'm one. Your body, soul, and spirit. If you're only one with two, you give up. You're three in one. Because you're created by the three in one. Yeah. If, if you think you're only one, your body, soul, and spirit, if you're, if you're going to pull through that you're only one, which two do you plan to give up? You are three in one. You're in his image. And something happened. Changed everything when he created us. He's already created the animals, the fish, the cows, and all that clouds. After he creates us comes intimacy. A personal name. You, you get someone's attention by their name. Genesis 2-7. Then Lord God took dust from the ground and formed it. A man from it, he breathed and breathed into the man's nose, and the man became a living person. Lord God is actually translated in the Hebrew, Yahweh. The first time we have a name, it's creation of us. Intimacy. Up to this verse, the term has been a very generic God. But he creates us, and now he says Yahweh. Now we have intimacy. Intimacy's begun. We have a relationship with him that animals can't because of intimacy. And then it says, he formed us from the dust of the ground. From the dust of the ground, he formed us. Everything comes back to him. There's a wonderful old story about scientists that they had communication with God and said, you know, we don't need you anymore. We, we can make human beings. Science has gone that far. And God said, to him, no, no, you've got to be kidding. No, no, we can't. We, we can make the organs. We can make the heart. We can make the blood vessels. We don't need you. We now, in, 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 in science, we, we can create human beings. And God said, well, I make human beings from, from dirt, from clay. 
And the scientists say, yeah, we, we, we can do that. We can take clay and make human beings. And God says, that's amazing. Show me. And then we start to get clay and God says, stop, get your own clay. <laughs> it all comes back to God sooner or later. He formed us from clay. Now the word formed here is an interesting Hebrew term. It's the way a potter would make a masterpiece. It depicts this vessel of clay, skillfully molded, the most perfect vessel earth has ever seen. Yet, it's clay. It's lifeless. Until God imparts himself. So we have God breathing into it. It breathed in the nostrils the eternal breath of him. He's eternal. His breath is in human beings. We're eternal. Remember, I'm a spirit housed in a body. Breathed here. The Hebrew is also an interesting word. It's actually a compound of where we get our word explosion. This is not God with a... This is a miniature miniature explosion into the nostrils of man. Think about this. I mean, come on. In the physical realm. He's built this thing out of clay and then God explodes into him and those clay balls turn into eyes and interior organs become the heart and blood begins to flow. I mean, it's a miracle of creation. Jesus beautifully illustrates this. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 is a very unique teaching healing. Jesus comes across the guy born blind. Now that's key. And he heals him in a remarkable way. He spits on the ground. He makes clay. He rubs the guy's eyes with clay. And he's healed. In there, part of you that's going, what are you doing? I mean, I mean, you're God in the flesh. Just say, be healed. Okay, we're done. Why, why is he monkeying around, getting clay, spitting on it, making it? Because this guy isn't a healing. His eyes never worked. This is creation. He's showing us again creation. This guy's eyes never worked. The scripture is very clear. He was born blind. Jesus isn't healing and disease. He's creating eyes. And so he's taking us back to the creation of Genesis. That's why he's using the clay. Because he could have went, hey, you're here. No, he's teaching us. He's teaching us creation. Also in creation, God breathes directly in our nostrils. Now, the only way to do this is face to face. If you can show me another way, show me. So, we have God face to face with us. Maybe, maybe the purpose of the Bible is to bring us back to that, where we live our lives face to face with God. And, and what is powerful to me is, our beginning is face to face with God. He's breathing in us in Genesis. You ever notice our end? Genesis 22, 3 and 4. Nothing God judges guilty will be in that city, heaven. The thrones of God and the Lamb will be there, and God's servants will worship Him. They will see His face. Our journey began in creation, face to face. Our journey ends in revelation, face to face. Sin has screwed this thing all up. And God has said, we're going to make it right, and we're going to be face to face. And, and part of this, all this whole story, of our, it's our story. We're living this now. How God concerns Himself with us. In fact, the question is asked, Psalm 8-4, What is man that you're mindful of? And the sons of man that you visit with him? In other words, why do you spend so much time with us? We're a mess. I don't know about you, but I'm a mess. Amen. I don't know you, but I, I don't mess if I do your story. I go, ooh, you're a mess too. <laughs> so the question is, why do you, holy God, spend so much time with us? The goal is not to make us a better person. 
The goal set us from death to life. Supporting us. Challenging us. Blessing us. So that we might live a kingdom and God receive the glory. We have to actually now have a purpose. You're not just going to work. You're not just coming home. You're not just preparing meals. You're actually part of a purpose. Nothing sadder than and saying followers of Jesus walk around like they're unimportant. You're the most important creation of all the universe. You're the most important creation of all the universe. You're designed for face-to-face relationship. Your eternity is above the angels. God and Satan battle over you. How precious are you? So, how does Satan deal with this? We go back to our image creation. I think the best way, look at it like this. A woman is engaged to a guy. They've had their wedding showers. She's got her gifts. The church is ready. The pastor's ready. We're a week out before the wedding. And he comes up to her and says, Listen, I found something else I like better than three years ago. Crushing her. What does she do? She takes this picture. She tears it to pieces. And stamps on it. Now, she can't, she can't do anything to him. In her hatred... But she can sure step on his image. We're in the image of God. Satan can't touch God. But he can sure step on his image. That's me and you. He tears us up in hatred. And steps on us. Every time a drunk. Staggers in a gutter. And vomits on himself. That's the devil stamping on the image of God. That's me and you. Every time a murderer takes another life. That's the devil stamping on the image of God. Every time a woman sells herself in prostitution, reduces herself to a commodity, that's the devil stamping on the image of God. Every time a church member slanders another, that's the devil stamping on the image of God. Everyone, everyone who is living their life without Christ continues a life of no purpose. That's the devil stamping on the image of God. Every time a follower of Jesus does not live kingdom and live in the war, that's the devil stamping on the image of God. Satan comes and says, there you are, God. Look what your image looks like. Look what I've done to your image. I can't touch you, but I can sure mess with your image. Remember, Satan slanders us daily. See, we're not setting him up for war to, do, to learn new stuff. We're getting a big picture. Understand why we're here. So we live in discernment and we guard our soul. Now, soul is the word we toss around a lot in church, isn't it? The definition of the soul is the individual spiritual ego of all of us. In other words, it's the soul that says, I will, or I will not. It's that decision-making piece of our spiritual personality. It's the rudder. It steers our life. It's what the Holy Spirit deals with. The very soul of you. When God comes along and says, you're not with me. You say you are, but you're not with me. And our heart goes a little faster, and our mind begins to race, and things begin to happen. That's our soul. When we come to Christ, say, God, in heaven, forgive me. That's my soul. When I make decisions to live kingdom, that's my soul. When I say no to things that don't give God glory, I say yes to things that God gives God glory, that's my soul. And as we come to Christ, it really does create something very different in us. The person that I used to be before Christ, that person's not around anymore. And you really become, because of the soul decisions and living kingdom, almost as if you're, you're a whole new person. In fact, our scripture talks about crucifying your old self. And by the way, isn't this baptism? You ever notice the wording of baptism? Unless you understand it's kind of gross. Colossians 
12. When you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. Buried? As you think about it, that's not a very encouraging introduction, is it? When you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. And you were raised up with him through your faith in God's power that was shown when you raised Christ from the dead. The symbolism of baptism is about kingdom. What I used to be is dead. Buried. And I'm alive, a brand new person in Christ. That's what baptism is. That's what the water represents. And this war with Satan is so simple, so obvious. Go back to the beginning. The basis of our information is the Word of God. Adam had a pretty small Bible. The Word of God are his commands. And by the time we get to Adam, the Bible hasn't been written yet, but it kind of has. There are two verses. There's two verses of, of, of the known Bible, two verses of God speaking. So I think reading the Bible in a year is pretty easy for Adam. So we have two verses, which basically is the Bible at that point. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 is the Bible at that point. God's first commandment is Adam, here is the word of the Lord. And the Lord commanded to the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In that day you will surely die. Pretty typical command. As you look at the God, God's commands, they're based in two pieces. A promise and a condition. There's nothing more if then than the word of God. If I confess my sins, then he is faithful just to forgive me of my sins. God's promises are all based in if-then wrapping paper. And here it is. Eat freely. Not that true. So, Satan immediately comes back with his word. Genesis 3, 4. Just one chapter later. You're not going to die. So we have the word of God and an immediate satanic challenge. This is exactly the way your life is. Period. Nothing's changed. In the eons of time, from Genesis to now, from creation to now, the word of God and the satanic challenge. God says this, Satan says that. And Satan, who's beautiful, knows how to get our attention and focus on the wrong thing. It always blows my mind. I wish we had some evidence to say, how big is the garden to be? How many miles? How gigantic? Are there thousands of trees with unlimited fruits? And Satan's got these people looking at one tree. And that tree looked mighty good. He knows how to draw our attention to the wrong thing and make it look beautiful. Remember last night? The Bible has so many adjectives for Satan, but never once calls him stupid. Not one time. Now, Adam and Eve have a decision at their core, their soul. Us too, pretty much every single day. This is repeated. And there is the war. It's part of you going, you know, seems to me, God who created and decided everything, if he wanted obedience, why didn't he just build us so he had to obey? If, if, obedience, if, if obedience is the ever-loving goal, and your God didn't build us so we have no choice, build us so we can obey, and you get your way. The problem with that is things never defeated. It's our ability to choose. If God wanted robots, what is he going to get? See, it's the gamble that he took. It's our ability to choose that puts us in a position to defeat Satan every single day. God could have defeated Satan without us to build something more beautiful than him and destroy it. Instead, Satan's defeated every single day by me and you, over and over and over. 
Now, perhaps you've never shaken your fist and say, I don't want God in my life. But if you're not living kingdom, that's exactly what you've done. If you're not living kingdom, that's really what you've done. If God's not getting glory from your life, then somebody is. And that's why I think the church has got to be awakened and intentional. Never to float downstream again or ignore the war. Because I think Satan's greatest weapon, which is a dominant thing in, in our culture, is this lie. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It's just that simple. That's a lie. I'm sorry. That, that is bogus down to the bottom line. That is a lie out of hell. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Doesn't that make sense? Again, remember, yesterday we talked about Satan is not going to give stupid ideas. He never calls them done. He's never going to tempt you with something so obviously dumb that you're not going to He's going to tempt you with something you fall for. And that makes sense to me. Good people ought to go to heaven. Bad people ought to go to hell. Why is that so wrong? The problem here is, what's good? Where's the line? As you think about it, good's a relative term, isn't it? I mean, compared to Hitler, I'm right. Compared to Mother Teresa, not so much. So we, we do have to, there, if good people go to heaven, don't we have to at least admit to each other, therefore, exactly what is good? Where's the line? Here's the hitch heaven's not for the good. Heaven is a perfect place, perfection is the minimum. Wait a second. What's well, going to be? Perfect is perfect, isn't it? I mean, so is common sense here. If it's perfect, and if one person can get in who's not perfect, is heaven perfect anymore? I mean, perfect is perfect. If one person who's not perfect can get into heaven, then it's good to hold it up. It's not perfect. So, the only way to get into heaven is you got to be perfect. I don't know what you people are going to do. I'm going to say, me too. In fact, the Bible makes these terrible statements that all have sinned. We're all doomed. Technically, nobody goes to heaven. Well, this is an encouraging marriage. Even glad you called this a weekend of encouragement. Technically, nobody goes. Really good, moral people end up in hell. There's got to be a way to solve this. There's got to be some way, somehow, to figure out how can me, not perfect, get into heaven. You make it pretty clear. I'm the way. The truth and the life. You don't get by the Father. You don't see the Father taking it through me. Jesus is at the right hand of the judgment. The right hand of the Father. You ever wonder why? He just wants a good seat. Why is it the right hand of the Father? Pretend this is this microphone is me. You have lost weight. <laughs> I come to the Father, imperfect, and Jesus is there to say, He covers me. That's why the Word has these, these phrases like the Father sees us in Christ, or we, He sees us covered by the blood. That's why the crucifixion is such a big deal. We can't get in outside of Christ. It is Christ's perfection that becomes our ticket. 
Father sees Jane Tanner in the perfection of Christ. No wonder Jesus says, no way, no way, no how, no way, unless you come through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. End the story. And so we come to Christ and say, God in heaven, could I have Jesus' forgiveness over me? That now I have the opportunity to actually live for your glory. That Satan never again uses my name to say, look how I stamped on your image. Because you and I are the most precious things God ever created. We're in his image. And Satan desires to stamp on that image. Because everything comes back to kingdom. Living glory. And the Father sees me in Christ. Yeah. It's a war. And you were in battle today. You'll be in battle tonight. Tomorrow morning, the Sabbath, you'll be in battle again. If people think Christianity is for the weak, they're not, they're not living in reality. It's for the incredibly strong mature. Let me have prayer with you. Tomorrow, we actually are given a picture of Daniel. Daniel gets a picture of this battle between angels and demons where we actually see the thing. And the battle lasted 21 days. Daniel prayed to God and God said, I sent the answer. Gabriel was the, Gabriel was the angel that comes with the answer. Gabriel says, I lived on day one. And Daniel says, I've been praying this for 21 days. And Daniel said, it took 21 days to get here. How fast do angels go? I mean, speed of thought. What happened those 21 days to slow him down? In fact, God even called reinforcements. Michael the Archangel to join this back. We actually are given an insight into a literal battle. And the problem is, it teaches us that there is an angel and a demon over the city of Fairbanks. And over the city of North Pole. And over America. And there is an angel and a demon over two rivers in Nazarene Church. There is an angel and a demon over you. We learn from this battle how personal this is. We wrap everything up by breaking this down in the mind. And I think we come out realizing there's more important things going on here than we can see. But I think as we understand the big picture, it motivates us, it fires us up, it keeps us focused on what's real. And it changes our life. Let me have a prayer with you, Madam Pastor Bobbis, in this. Father, we, we've been talking about such big things, and there's a lot of grand statements being made here. But they're biblical statements. They're your story. And as we, as we kind of follow through with the entire story today, looking, looking at our creation, remind us how precious we are. I think Satan is the author of low self-esteem. I think he loves to down us and make us feel un- unworthy. And, and he loves to attack us at who we are at our core. He loves to have us feel bad and dislike ourselves. That's evil, that's a lie. We're the most precious thing you ever built. We're the most precious thing you ever built. You breathed in us. We began face-to-face and we end face-to-face. We're the most precious thing you've ever built. And you battled for us. Father, may we live our life living in the big picture. And we praise you for your power and authority as we gather tonight. We pray for tomorrow. 
May it be an incredibly important and maybe even life-changing day as we leave more motivated to serve you than we ever have in our life. I thank you for this church. Thank you for the ministries of this church. I thank you, thank you for North Pole and Fairbanks First. I thank you for the ministries of this church. Sometimes I think churches can feel we're not a really big, big church, therefore we're not important. That's a lie out of hell. That's a satanic lie. We're here about changing lives one at a time and making a difference in people's lives one at a time. And Father, we pray your blessings. Defeat the demon that has been dispatched to these churches because they are so important Satan battles in these churches. May we be focused on you. And we ask this in your holy name of Jesus. Amen.